We are all here. It is on time. Things Good to see you, Brad. Amazing. Look, I figured out a solution to my problem of losing the screws to my microphone stand. What? Okay. I simply duct tape. Take. Duct tape. Duct tape is often the solution to lots and lots of things. Do you guys want me to record locally? I got my mic here too. Yeah, we would love for you to record locally as well because things okay. always go horribly wrong and often do. Always only with Brad's <laughs> stuff though. My stuff never goes wrong. So uh -huh. uh, <laughs> say that you want. I'll make sure to share the file with you then, Noah. Yes. No, no, just um we'll share the file if uh if the Zoom recording isn't good. Okay, cool. All right. Um I am recording over here, so it'll just roll until we start. Okay. So what should we talk about? Um, that is, this started with me poking Brian on his <laughs> belief there was a golden age of comedy and common purpose in the left of center political sphere back in 2005 to 2008, um, which he didn't say the next sentence, but the next sentence is usually, and the Obama administration immediately destroyed it all. <laughs> cutting down democracy for America and making a hard neoliberal turn as Obama became hypnotized um, by, usually people say Larry Summers, you know, but actually <laughs> it was Kim Geithner who did the hypnotization um, early in 2009. Um, well, I'm entirely well, missing the context. Wait, what Obama well, destroyed the the center, the left of so, center consensus? Yeah, he's, where he's well, shut down his entire social media and grassroots organization. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't think that there was like comedy, but I do think that there was this sort of robust pr like pressure system of like liberals and progressives, mostly online, who were like of one mind about two things that like Republicans had to go, but also they could fight with each other about who they wanted to replace George yes. W. Bush without worrying too much about like, oh, if we attack Hillary Clinton, we're going to be helping John McCain. Yes. And that system I thought was good. And then, then Obama. For, yes, the none Obama did. The party, but all were for the state. Then the great man helped the poor and the poor man loved the great. Then lands were fairly portioned. Then spoils were fairly sold. Then Romans were like brothers in the brave days of old. Um, then my view was this is a story we have often heard of some past golden age in which things worked and there was creative tension rather than the free-for-all Hobbesian shit show we see around us. Um, I get why it sounds like that, but I really do. Wait, Brian, 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 Brian. This is not the save, podcast. Brian, this is oh, the podcast. Save this for the podcast. Because okay, yeah, this, okay, right now, Brad, li Brad likes to sort of rehearse the arguments before we do the cheesy intro, and then we do the cheesy intro, and then he cuts out. So everything we just said will be cut. Yes, right. I disapprove you guys can of use it as like B-roll or outtakes or whatever. That's fine. Yes, we can keep it rolling this time. We can have it this time. We can try <laughs> the Cinema Verite version. That's fine with me. Or but we wait. can talk about other stuff. Or we could talk, let's talk about... about well, let's talk about that and other stuff. The, the, Brian we, we should definitely brand... mention the fact that the, the reason that I first learned of Brian's existence, and I still don't know how to pronounce your last name because I've heard it pronounced three different ways. Partly because I misspell it 75% of the time. Partly because of that, but yes. is it Boitler? That's the one. You got got it. it. That's the one yeah. I had used, but mm -hmm. I'd heard it uh, other ways. Um, There's Butler and Butler are the other two, but yeah, it's like Reuters or Freud. Yeah, Butler the is German. the one that uh, that a lot of people say. And yeah, that's like, the phonetic okay, one. It's, so it's when people say that, I usually don't correct them. And the third thing we could talk about is that Brian now has a brand new Substack. That's true. Yes, already in two weeks put up 16 substantive posts, which is an is absolutely right? amazing thing. That's why I'm so tired. That is truly awesome. <laughs> to link posts. I will break down at some point. I admire anyone who writes even more than I do. Although for the first six months of my Substack, I was writing that much because I was writing... Um, Seven Substack posts a week plus five Bloomberg posts. A week. Columns a week. That's too much. That was fine. It was the pandemic. Yeah. Well, oh I yeah. Lot, I had a lot to say and nothing to do. No. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. I I actually I, I took my writing way down during the pandemic and started like weightlifting as mm. my pressure release thing. That's good. Well, I was gonna say the reason that I first learned of your existence was actually completely random. It was because at some point you dated a college friend of mine. 
Lisa McIntyre, you, you, yes. you DM me about this one. I did. Yes. Okay. That's how that's like. And then I started reading your stuff because of that. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Mm, true. Well, he's a Berkeley wannabe guy. Right? True. <laughs> I, I went to I went to Stanford for the for the money. Like <laughs> I went there because I didn't have to pay tuition. Mm -hmm. Berkeley, oh. I would have had to pay a lot of tuition. Yeah. Oh, I, I thought you meant I went there because Stanford would wire yeah. me into a yes. network this that would is... result in me making a lot of money. No. <laughs> yes, this is no. Stanford and would... Princeton and Harvard have a policy of attempting to make it unaffordable for anyone Berkeley wants, for anyone they want to go to Berkeley. <laughs> yes. No matter how rich their parents are. They... I was like, oh my God, am I really going to pay $13,000 a year to go to Berkeley. That was after like whatever scholarship yeah. or whatever. And I was like, 13,000 a year. That's real money. And like, it is, it does seem like that at that time. I, I mean, applied it was to Stanford as well. And, and as I recall, their rejection letter to me was like just a postcard with the words, ha ha scrawled in red crayon on it. And they dropped it in the mail. So they did not get in. <laughs> My acceptance letter from Harvard began, it came in an envelope addressed to me, and then I opened it up, and the first line of it is, Dear Thomas, colon. <laughs> My uncle um, oh, went to the University of Chicago, got rejected from Harvard, mm -hmm. and uh, it was in the in the era of, um, of like, the quota system, and they said, for cognitive and non-cognitive reasons, we decline, and he has always been convinced that he was uh, he was um, like left off the acceptance list because he was Jewish, I and see. he's carried a chip oh. on his shoulder about Harvard ever since. And he may oh well be gosh. correct. Yeah, he might. Yeah. At any event, I did not then inquire as to whether I was supposed to get the letter, given there was a clear bug in the mail merge and wrong <laughs> with the database. Yeah, did Thomas get to go to Harvard too? I presume not? somewhere there may be a Thomas who was supposed to get admitted who got the wrong <laughs> the dear Brad letter. And, and he's not there. All right. Um, but we should start. <laughs> yeah. <All right. laughs> and let me, we should decide at the end whether we want to have the B-roll or at the front as a B-roll because it's got- I, I, well, I do have kind of a hard stop. The McIntyre, for the McIntyre parts. I'd like to cut out some of the McIntyre parts, I think, <laughs> in order to yes. avoid giving I, I trust you all with the editing. All right. Um, all right. So, so I do have a hard stop, by the way, at noon. Okay. All right. Well then. Five, four, three, two, one. Noah, what is the key insight? Hexapodia is the key insight. Six feet. And what is that supposed to mean? That there is often some key nugget of fact that if you understand it correctly and place it in its proper context, will transform your view of the situation, allowing you to grok it completely. And in the context of Werner Vinge's amazing, mind-bending science fiction space opera novel, A Fire Upon the Deep. The importance of Hexapodia is... That those sapient bushes riding around on six-wheeled scooters are... Genetically programmed to be a fifth column of spies and agents for the great evil. Today, however, we seek different in key insights than Hexapodia. And are we going to ask uh, Brian Boitler about those key insights, Brad? I would love to ask him, especially because the first key insight is his name is pronounced Boitler. Uh, <laughs> not Boatler, as in Beauregard. Or, or Butler, as in Butte, Montana. Or as in Butte, <laughs> Butler, or any of the other combinations. No, but Boitler. Welcome today to Substack land, having just created a Substack and done 16 substantive posts in two weeks, which is an amazing rate of production. Thanks so much for saying all that. It's great to be here. So, Brian, and, for, and, for, and for clarifying the pronunciation of my name, it's long overdue. Yes. And so, Brian, what are your key insights today? Today? Uh, boy. I didn't come armed with an answer. All to that right, question. not today. What are your key <laughs> insights in some broader, more peaceful, less, you know, hellscape-ridden lake of fire that is the second death world and the world we have I, this week? I feel like I've been making one boring point for like three years now, but it's like my one insight, mm -hmm. okay. um, which is which is the insight occurred to me in like late 2018, but really with force in 2019 when Democrats took the house back after having been locked out of power for two years under Trump and a Republican <laughs> Congress. And I was expecting them to come in with a, um, a real passion for 
investigation and oversight and just get to the bottom of everything uh, in Donald Trump's closet. Um, and instead, they came in with a much more timid um, approach to things like that. Um, and I thought that this was a mistake. And it kind of opened my eyes to some what I what I view as deficiencies within the Democratic Party. And so now I have a whole sub stack um, that's dedicated. Well, at least part of the sub stack is dedicated to to addressing that deficiency. The deficiencies of the Democratic Party. Yes, but from a place of wanting them to do better against Republicans because Repub like, you know, Republicans scare the shit out of me. So, so what the young I don't want them to win. What the young Spartacists used to call critical support. Um, yeah, there you go. Identify their deficiencies, but only in the hopes of making them do better in the future. Right. That's 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 how it works in theory. As least. opposed to uncritical support or critical destruction. Those are those are both two modes that I try to avoid. Okay. All right. Um, and so you'd have posts with titles like Charts to a Gunfight, How the Fighting Democrats of 2007 Became the Timid Focus Grouped Party of Today. Right. So that I, I actually wrote that one kind of, I mean, I had I had started drafting it by the time you and I had a little exchange on, on Substack about whether the whole premise for my for my little newsletter is misguided. Um, but I had you in mind when I finished it. Um, uh, but really that piece is about a, I, I guess like it's like a, a partial explanation of what I think happened. And a lot of um, what I think happened, I stipulate to at the top of the post, to, there are good reasons I think for Democrats to have grown timid after a brief spurt of, I thought, like pretty solid opposition at the end of the George W. Bush presidency, yeah. you know, the backlash to Obama, the, the, the trauma of the of Trump's victory in 2016. Um, mm -hmm. But I think over that same stretch of time, um, the Democratic establishment, and I think really the whole liberal establishment, became so enamored of quantitative methods, essentially, um, mm -hmm. and applying them to electoral politics that they outsourced the, some of the, like, the more human aspects of politics to data and surveys and machine learning um, and it made them a worse party. Um, that's and so that's why I say they bring charts to a gunfight. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I well, can't substantiate how much Democrats relied on data prior to and, and, and since the 2007, eight era, but in just in my re reporting experience, the answers to questions about party decision-making has, has tended to become more, well, that's essentially what the polls say we should do or say, and sometimes or, I feel okay. like that leads to baffling places. Oh, so, so Brian, just to clarify, sorry, Brad, Brian, just to clarify, um, you're not talking about using, uh, data, doing data-driven policymaking. You're talking about doing data-driven electioneering. You're talking yes, about data-driven electoral politics. Exactly. Or, or, or even like at the nexus, I guess, of, of policymaking and, and politics, this idea that issue polls can help you optimize your policy for the best politics and then tell you what policies in in your rhetoric will lead the lead to the best political outcomes i think resting on data and survey results to answer those two things is not usually like either necessary or or doesn't always lead to the best outcomes but it's sort of the default mode for the party these days and so to this respect, you are the quantum mechanical anti-particle to Matthew Frisius. <laughs> well, sort of. David, David Shore. It sounds like it sounds like you're you're sort of an anti-Shorist here. Yeah, we yeah, 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 I mean, exactly. I, I, he comes I don't with all know the David personally, so I don't want to yeah. make it sound like I have like some personal beef with him because you know, judging by the New York Times articles, he he's a fun guy to spend time with. But um, and a very but smart the, yes, the, but the but the idea that that, that you know, he, what, let's talk about David and Matt together for a second because I think when David launched his his consultancy or his firm or or I don't know what the proper term for it is, the the premise was that if Democrats who at the time were still flirting with making some version of the child tax credit permanent. If they structured it just so, the polling would take the policy from 49% approval or something like that to somewhere above 50, and that this would make a big difference in the politics of the midterm election. 
So um, and sure. I thought that 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 was that seemed completely nuts to me, and that they should either make it permanent in some version that they could agree to, um, or or not because they didn't have the votes, and that this idea that you could you could optimize it to that level of precision and the politics of it, not the policy, just like make the policy just so, so that the polling of the policy becomes as high as possible so that you can talk about it in a, in a, in a way that benefits you in election is a, is a way to think about politics that um, that's banana pants to me. So that the shore is, we wanted to find shoreism unfairly to David Shore to be of all the good policies you might do to take the one that is most easily tweaked to become most popular according to the polls and double down on that. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's probably fair. the wrong way to go about it. Um, as opposed I, to doing things, doing what you actually think is going to be the very best policy for the country on the one hand. And I would say matism is avoiding doubling down on policies that are popular with your current activist base and no one else. I think that that's a more reasonable right. view of uh, right. Like that, I, I have I have like tried to reduce the aspects of this line of thinking. That I think I coined the term popularism, um, and I'm sorry for that. Okay. But the, the to reduce oh, it I to a level where like, that. Wow. No, I think oh, I, I, I used it first, and they and then they appropriated it. Ah. I, um, but uh, but that my my. If you if you if you strip away some of the more eccentric elements of it and reduce it to something that I could agree with, it would be Ob what Obama said about foreign policy, which is like, don't do stupid shit. If your pollster says, hey, you, you know, in, in your heart, you believe this would be ideal policy. But every way I pull it, I can't get it above 30 percent. And like people get really mad in focus groups when I talk about it. So mm -hmm. you need to do something about that. Either drop it as a policy or like find a magic new way to talk about it. Or you need to acknowledge how angry it makes people and, you know, double down on it, but do it on principle and, and, and um, acknowledge that you're on the wrong side of the public on it, but that you intend to pursue it anyway. Something, right? If, you're, if your pollster tells you something like that, you should listen to them, right? Like that is not, I, I don't think that that's particularly controversial. Um, it's, <laughs> it's when you, it's when you sort of like, the, the reductio of it is that if you can make all of your policies optimally polling and they're all polling at 55% or up, that this is going to make a big difference in how the public views you or the parties. And it's sort of like the main lever you have to maximize your chance of winning the next election. Um, uh, I don't think that's true. No, like, uh, I have a sophisticated and nuanced and carefully explained version of this. And I bet if we got Matt and David here as well, they would also have a nuanced and smart and sufficiently complex explanation of this with only relatively minor differences of emphasis um, and of focus on what the Democratic Party should actually do. Um, That's probably right. But uh, so so here's the other thing is I. Yeah, I think David and, and Matt are, are 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 wonks in their DNA. And so. In a sort of hammer nail sense, when they think of politics, their mind goes to policy right away. And so then, like, how do you how do you do the policy making and, and the rhetoric about policy in such a way that doesn't alienate the middle? Right. And I I think that that's a, a, like a, a worthwhile exercise to do. But in like where I come from and, and how my mind works is that politics is only in, in like very small part about that stuff. And it's really about agenda setting and and figuring out your opponent's vulnerabilities and, and exploiting them. And a lot of that has almost nothing to do with policy at all. Right. And if the, if the leadership of the democratic party was doing that stuff really well, then I would think, okay, now we should all get together and try to figure out what like the optimal agenda for the democratic party is and how the candidates should ideally talk about it so that we're not leaving anything on the table for Republicans. But that's not the situation. And so it feels a little bit like a distraction for me and, and like reaching for high hanging fruit to to spend so much time arguing about whether activists have 
the most popular ideas and whether they should like shut up about them or or change the way they talk about them. Like maybe it would help at the at the margins very slightly, but it's there are there are lower hanging fruit to pluck, and, and maybe that's where we should. And your view so is this is a big difference from now between now and what was going on in two thousand and five and two thousand and eight. I think so. I mean, my you know, Brian, I have a I have a concrete question sure. about two thousand five yeah. to two thousand eight. So I, I think these are interesting topics. I I I would like to concretize these topics mm -hmm. and think of examples. Um, we'll talk. We'll come back to the CTC. But so in two thousand five and two thousand eight, what were some policy ideas that Democrats and and or the the you know cent left of center embraced that polled badly at the time but which turned out to be either morally the right thing to do or electorally the right thing to do in the long term and or what were some what were some uh you know sort of principles that Democrats stuck to within that golden era that then turned out to to be on the right side of history so to speak well, I mean, if you if I think that like the place to look would be the Democratic presidential primary of 2007 and eight. And it tells a slightly mixed picture about policy per se. Right. Like the the healthcare plans they all ran on, I think, probably pulled in total. OK, but the individual mandate pulled specifically very poorly. But then the guy who won the primary was the one who didn't include that. Piece in his version of the healthcare plan, which by the way, like wonks like me and Brad and Jonathan Cohn and Matt Iglesias at the time were, were excoriated Barack Obama for not doing the anti-popularist thing and omitting this, what we thought was crucial so element. Barack Obama. His... But that sounds like a success story because, because no, it, you know, he, Barack he, he, Obama did whatever, you know, he, he just said some stuff. People probably didn't pay attention to the details of this health plan. Then he wins. There's the Great Recession. There's opportunity for a big reform. He does it, and he includes the individual mandate anyway. He just does. I it. know it. It, it, it kind of worked. I mean, the, the, yeah, it worked out. Kind of the opposite. You can you can tell kind of the opposite story about climate change, which is that all of the candidates um, proposed very far-reaching um, plans that included prices on carbon dioxide, and then, like they they never ran away from those plans during the the general election. They even tried to pass them, but uh, but the, the Waxman-Markey bill was what it became in 2009 and 10. Um, it went down in smoke, or it passed the House, but like never got mm. close to passing in the Senate. But like, it was it, it wasn't as though at the time there was this big clamor for Democrats to shut up about cap and trade or about carbon taxes because they would they would poll too poorly to to make to allow Barack Obama to beat John McCain. I mean, that just, that kind of thinking didn't really enter the picture very much. And I think all for the best, even though we didn't end up with a version of Barack Obama's climate plan becoming law, just good. Like it, it was fine. He was able to say what he thought should happen and nobody had a panic attack about it. And he ran and he won and then he tried to get it enacted and it didn't work. And so they moved on and eventually the IRA passed. And in your view, today is different than that kind of scrum, how? Um, well, I think that there's a lot of, um, like, persnickety, like, pouring over candidate agendas and and scolding them if their agendas include things that don't poll at 55% or up. But, like, what, what, what I remember most, like, my recollections of that era are less about, like, how the policy agendas looked during the primary and then the general election and more like Hillary Clinton was supposed to be the nominee back in 2007, but the leadership of the party had some misgivings about her candidacy in part because of she was on the wrong side of the Iraq war and Barack Obama wasn't. And so they encouraged him to challenge her in the primary. Um, and it, you know, nobody thought that Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid were sabotaging their own party by doing this at the time. It was, it was fine. I mean, it was obviously got heated, and and people who supported Obama and people who supported Clinton fought each other, um, and it, it wasn't always super friendly. But like this idea that, that there should be some kind of healthy competition like that was, was, was fine. Or 
Similarly, like Nancy Pelosi in the in the run up to the 2006 midterms wanted to beat House Republicans. And so she like ran, like organized the party around this mantra of the Republican culture of corruption. And they did a lot. You know, they, they promised a lot of investigations and they they pushed on uh, vulnerabilities that Republicans had already exposed. They had the K Street project, you know, and ultimately people went to jail. Yes. For the corruption scandals of the late George W. Bush years. And then they won and then they didn't duck the oversight they promised to do. They did it, you know, in most cases happily. Um, and they didn't impeach George W. Bush, but they got, you know, they they caught Alberto Gonzalez in the U.S. attorney scandal and he had to resign. I mean, it was it was considered natural that if your opponent is revealed to have some sort of corrupt vulnerability that you you go after it. You don't try to seem reasonable right. by ignoring it. And I think that is what happened over time, like into the 2019 era, is that that kind of like, oh, obviously Barack Obama should run against Hillary Clinton. Oh, obviously we should go after George W. Bush uh, for, for Republican corruption scandals gave way to, to the timidity I've noticed in, in, the, in the Trump era. And I think it would, we'd be better off if things were more like they were in that brief window we're, where we're not the in the net Trump roots. Era. yeah no, well we kind of are i mean i don't think it ever really ended really? um yeah i mean well we'll see if he comes the, back yeah no but okay like but like to this point right like currently republicans have done a really great job convincing about half the country that biden and trump are about equally corrupt and they did this by sort of pretending to believe that it's bad for the child of the president to, to trade on his name and, and like wield influence in that way. It is. I bad. mean, I think that is bullshit, but, but, but they've done a good job of, of, of harming their opponent with this crap. Right? No, but, no, no, but Democrats, really, no, they haven't. They have. Nobody cares about that. Nobody actually cares about Hunter Biden. What they don't like oh, is you're like, wrong, Noah. what People they don't like is the, care. No, and, no, and they like, just no. They're just mad that, about. You culture think that change. everyone who said you think that everyone who says Hunter Biden is already a dyed in the wool Republican, and I'm telling you that it has penetrated past that to people who don't follow politics super closely, and they're concerned about this. They think no, that oh, think man, dyed in the wool they're bummed to find that Joe it. Biden is also kind of dirty, even though they're wrong about it. But I didn't no, bring they, it up. They're to using like, it as a proxy labor. in their mind for culture wars, which is what they really care about. I don't. I don't think that's true at all. And I think that like, well, we'll see how it. How do we know? This, I well, I mean, this ought to be a question. When I, when I talk to conservatives, when I talk to them about this, when I talk to Republican voters, and I do, um, you know, they'll mention Hunter Biden stuff, and then I'll say, like, why should I care about Hunter Biden? And in like five seconds, they'll start just going off onto um, summer twenty twenty. It'll always go to uh, uh, George Floyd protests. It'll always, it'll always just go there, and then maybe they'll say something about trans movement. Look, you know, so they'll I, say stuff about trans, and they'll say stuff about BLM, and it'll, it'll like. They don't even ha stay on the Hunter Biden thing when you talk to them about it. This is like regular so, folks, you know. So I think that the um, if you if you look at polling data, and there's there's a little mm -hmm. um, about about this question of like who's more corrupt. It's pretty even. Trump still edges out Biden, and if you look deeper into the numbers, obviously almost every Republican thinks Biden is corrupt, and almost every Democrat thinks. Trump is corrupt. So it, it is like a, a polarization phenomenon. Um, but the fact that it's close to 50 50, I think, suggests that there are persuadable voters who now think both candidates are corrupt. Wait, and Brian, I think did Joe you just Biden bring, is not corrupt. Do you but, just bring but, charts to a gunfight? I did, yeah. Ah. But, um, but I didn't bring up Hunter Biden to like really, I just, Republicans see a vulnerability and they went after it. But if, but if this is something that they want to, to to hash out, well, Democrats control the Senate. They have committee control. They have subpoena power. And Donald Trump's children and Donald Trump himself are both when they were in office and now out of office in league with the Saudis. They got Jared Kushner a $2 billion investment or bribe, right? Like if, if, if people want to have it out over who's let their children like – put their their like fingers in the cookie jar or whatever yeah. democrats should be willing to do that but they're just not interested they, they like don't want to um and i 
I mean, they don't want to believe... talk more about Trump's corruption. No, they but... don't want, yeah, well, they, or, or you're just like, look, like if you want, if you, if you want to abuse your oversight power to spread propaganda about Joe Biden because of what his son Hunter did, well, then two can play at that game. And I just think that like a, a party that was dignified and didn't take getting slapped in the face, uh, like lying down would just do, do that. They are doing this on age though. So, you know, the main knock against Biden is these old, which is a correct knock. I mean, it's old people do have problems, but, um, but Trump's really old too. And has arguably gone downhill more, much more than Biden. And you see people saying this all the time now and the, you know, you're definitely starting to see this message getting out there and it's going to seriously blunt the the old critique. So maybe- um, Is it arguable, right? That is the people I know who come out of meetings with Biden say, you know, God, he's sharper, much sharper than I thought. Uh, right, no, no, absolutely. He, he Biden, you know, well, he's people old. People who come out of meetings with Trump say, say you know, he's incoherent. always, you know, he was always erratic and didn't seem was, had a very hard time keeping his mind on the prize and was always- much more too interested in talking about his grievances than about anything we might actually do. But um, now it's really, really, really bad. Now he can barely keep. Yeah, he can't hold a he can't hold a thought. Yeah. And and that's going to come out, you know, and that and Democrats are already going after that. I see. Well, I mean, I exist online. I'm not a I'm not a real person. I'm an AI generated character created by Brad DeLong. This is well known um, as Brad Sock Puppet. But um, this is actually a theory in my first years of blogging is that I was because because people hadn't seen my picture and people actually thought I was a Brad DeLong Sock Puppet. Um, I was accused of this. But anyway, um, yes, no, they're, so they're going after that. So maybe they just don't think that the the like the corruption angle is actually that important. Maybe they think like, Everyone's cynical. Everyone just believes the other side is corrupt. It's not a winning issue. Let's go after the age thing instead. Yeah. Now, I mean, I think that what the decision is, is that, you know, they, the New York Times and everyone else will devote half the same amount of issue of column inches to Biden's corruption as to Trump's malfeasance. Yes. But we need to focus oh on the Trump malfeasance that has the greatest resonance and the most important. And, you know, that's what we are doing. Brad, are you telling me that the New York Times pitch bot hasn't shamed the New York Times into action <laughs> taking yes, a side yes. yet? The New York Times <laughs> pitch bot has not shamed the New York Times, wow. even though so, Tara wow. Swisher are trying to boost the New York Times pitch bot as much as possible. in an <laughs> So what, what, Brad, what is the Senate doing to um, to to rekindle or keep kindled? public focus on whatever it happens to be January 6th, most likely, and the and yeah. the attempt to overturn the election. Like what what are Senate Democrats doing that's that really high wattage play for the cameras stuff? You got to point. The problem is that the Senate Democrats, with the occasional exception of Elizabeth Warren, believe they have limited time to work and a very, very creaky institution, and they actually want to legislate. But they have, I mean, Rise, they they're not really legislating. If, if, if you want to, if you want to bracket, if you want to say they can't use the Judiciary Committee because they have to use that exclusively for judges. So they're not really doing that either. But let's just say they were. Okay. They have other, I mean, Ron Wyden has a, a committee that has jurisdiction mm -hmm. over financial institutions. Right. Um, and and there's, a, there's a whole subcommittee in the Senate where the chairman can issue subpoenas unilaterally, the current chairman is Dick Blumenthal, um, and it's just for investigations. It has total jurisdiction over everything. The problem is that I agree with you. Uh, <laughs> so I can't so, really reach back. But if there, I prefer, there, is, yeah. there is reporting about why mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi was reluctant to do a lot of um, investigation prior to the Ukraine scandal where I, her, her hand got forced and, and ended up in the impeachment. But before that, there were people in the party and voices on the outside who wanted investigations of Trump fi Trump's finances and a variety of other things, right? Um, and she tried to push her chairman off that. And her view, and it's she's been pretty consistent about kind of like ring fencing her frontline members and trying to protect them from, um, from anything that seems too partisan. Well, she thought, they represent districts where Trump is fairly popular. We shouldn't go after Trump too hard. 
That was the logic. And I think Democrats could have used a bit more of the Mitch McConnell logic, which is that if we toxify the opposition president, it'll drag their whole party down. Swing districts and safe districts alike. Um, and so we should not worry that our investigations of Donald Trump make it a little bit weird for Abby Spanberger in Virginia when she does a town hall and people are upset about those investigations. But if we get the goods and we hammer away at them for two years, Donald Trump will go from 38% to 35%. And that'll be the difference between a narrow victory and a, and a landslide. And I, I don't know, like I learned lessons from Mitch McConnell watching him, you know, uh, go to war with Barack Obama from 2009 to 2014, essentially 2016, really. Um, and I just think that those lessons apply generally. And but Democrats didn't seem to pick up on them. Wait, or, at this point, let me. Oh, sorry, Brad. Or that the congressional and other Democrats have decided that they are the kumbaya depolarizers and that Trump is now in the hands of the judicial process. Which is going yes, to do the job. I, I think that that's like a narcotizing thing they tell themselves yeah. that like it they, I think that they 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 think that if they you know talk about the policies that pull best be and they pull best because they help mo like many Americans, they will look high minded and reasonable and empathetic. Whereas Republicans will look crazy and that's how you capture the center. Right. But I don't think that I don't really think that the only way to capture the center is to do that. Sometimes the center is put off when you, you just don't stand up for yourself, for instance, right. like that. And, it, and there's no way to get polls to tell you how to how to carry yourself or carry a whole party in a way that commands respect from a you know a, a construct a median voter construct like I, I don't think that that's a possible problem to solve you just need to have good politicians in your party who are able to roll with the punches and i don't think that that is how they recruit and i wish it were wait now now brian at this point i just want to to challenge some of these things a little bit you know i'm i'm not a political pundit and i don't have super strong opinions about this but um you know, I, I can't help but notice that the midterms went pretty well for Democrats. And mm -hmm. that is really weird for, you know, unusual for mm -hmm. a uh, a newly elected president's first midterm election to go so well for the president's party as that midterm did. And I also noticed that before that midterm, Joe Biden gave this speech about how Republicans were attacking democracy. And he had this red backlight in a black room that, you know, was obviously a uh, dark Brandon reference for the online people, but it was very dramatic. And he mm -hmm. raised his hands. And he said, they are attacking democracy and blah, blah, blah. And um, you saw a lot of concern about attacks on democracy from polls, if you want charts to a gunfight. But you also just, um, you saw lots of rhetoric about this in the campaign and you saw the results. You saw that the people that Republicans lost, but Trump supported Republicans and people who had denied the results of the January of the of the um November 2020 election did much worse than other Republicans proportionally. So I feel like A, they went hard with the rhetoric about defending democracy, and B, it worked. So um, I mean, obviously, abortion ban was probably in there as well, but it was this unusually positive result for the president's party in a midterm. And I don't, you know, I don't think, well, like th this narrative of wimpy Democrats who only like to show their little charts and refuse to talk about Trump's corruption makes sense in a world where Democrats are talking about Trump's attacks on democracy, which were, uh, I believe, are a much bigger deal than corruption and that seemed to work in the election. So it seems like they're doing this. So they did They did work. And I, what, I, what I really liked about the outcome of the 2022 election is that it was kind of like a test. Like, are the, are, the, are the, like the big moral partisan fights of the day that have very little to do with like technocratic policy, are they the way to beat Republicans or not? And I think that you saw in the, in the, 2021 and 2022 congressional terms uh 
like two minds about about that question. Um, there was, you know, Nancy Pelosi didn't want to impeach Donald Trump for a second time, but then had to, then mm -hmm. didn't want to do a partisan committee to investigate January 6th, but then had to. The investigation got started six months after the actual insurrection and was led by a Republican. Like you can, you can kind of smell in there like a reluctance to make that the thing that Democrats identify themselves with. But then like Liz Cheney did a great job with it. And so it was very front of mind. You saw that Biden has an instinct to want to go after this. He actually cares about it. I think he's worried about it sincerely. Um, but his, you know, there is a presidential speech is great. It's better than zero presidential speeches, but it it was there was visibly like a a, a difference of opinion among his advisors about um, how much time he should. Yeah, no, I, um, I I think it wasn't just Biden because you know Biden's obviously the most prominent guy, and everyone watched that speech. But I think you saw a lot of Democratic um, politicians. Uh, you know, yeah. um, wait, but Brad, you got to say something mean about Stanford real quick. Go uh, Bears. Go Bears. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Stanford sucks. Um, anyway, so. Um, I, I think we're more or less agreeing. I just, I think that the. Um, I feel like they the, did do this. It wasn't just Biden. It was a lot of other Democratic politicians. Well, it was the, Democrat, it was the Democrats running against like pro-insurrection Republicans. Yeah. In Arizona and, and, yeah. Right. Like where they, where they confronted those kinds of candidates, they were confronted with questions about it. And those candidates turned out to be toxic to the public um, and, and lost. And I just feel like, okay, like eyes are I, like, that should be an eye-opening moment there. Prior to that, there were like 147, I think house Republicans who had voted not to certify the 2020 election. And pretty soon, well, I think that as we record this, Republicans have decided to go with Steve Scalise instead of Jim Jordan to be their, their speaker designate. But either way, those are both two people who who did not want to certify Joe Biden as the winner of the election. They're about to renominate Donald Trump. This raises a question. It's like, how do you I well, I hopefully not. I, I think I you're think probably not. right. Then Democrats but like, are gonna go after it again. You know, Biden's planning another speech about the same, you know, attacks on democracy. And it will this will surface again. And it didn't, you know. It really lost them a lot of uh, um, goodwill in the midterms there, and I don't. And I then Democrats definitely plan to handle ham, hammer it again. I'm sorry. And then, um, so when I look at the corruption issue and Democrats' willingness to talk about the corruption issue, what I see instead is the DDoS effect. Like, like the idea that Trump just does so many bad things in so many different domains that it's hard to make everyone the focus of your rhetoric. And if you're prioritizing which thing is most bad about Trump attacks on democracy are actually much worse than corruption. Um, you know, corruption's bad. We don't like corruption, but I care, you know, a hundred times more about attacks on democracy than about, you know, nest feathering and Jared Kushner getting a payoff and all that stuff. I just don't, you know, I mean, I care about it like a bit, but I care about democracy stuff just much more. And I feel like Democrats are catering to me personally. Like I said, I'm not a political pundit. I don't have strong opinions about this, but I feel like Democrats by focusing on the attacks on democracy and, you know, sort of not making as big a deal about about the corruption thing. We all kind of know that Trump is really corrupt, but they're, you know, they're prioritizing other things. That speaks to me because I care about democracy more than I care about corruption. So I I, I, I kind of feel like that the two things are so linked, but um, but my they are, you know, I'm not going to argue against that. My my main the, sort of the, the, the thrust of what I believe about this is that if if you are fortunate enough that your that your main political opponent is highly corrupt but you don't know all the details about the corruption is that digging is worth doing anyway because you don't know what you're going to find right and maybe you find the thing that gets people to go aha right like and this sort of is like how you get from benghazi to emails to you know, Jim Comey's late entry into the 2016 race and then President Donald Trump. Um, but the, the other side of that is that you have to be constituted in a way where the people on uh, like at the top, like top of the, of the leadership 
and then their lieutenants, like the committee chairman, and then the rank and file people are all kind of prime. If something happens, if we discover something or if a, uh, a development somewhere in the world that paints Republicans in an unflattering light materializes, we'll just be ready to pounce. We don't need to run it by a focus group. We'll just go for it. And I think Republicans do those two things all the time because there's very little downside and a very high potential upside. Like in two sequential elections in 2014 and in 2016, I would argue Republicans won because circumstance provided them something that helped them win in October and they were just ready to roll with it. Like they were, they, 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 they weren't like, no, we have to stick to our message of liberty and low taxes. They were like, let's talk about this Ebola thing in West Africa and how terrorists are going to smuggle it across the Southern border. And you can see the polls diverge right when that happens. And then in 2016, it was like, let's just keep like dragging Hillary Clinton down and, and investigating her emails and we'll see what happens. And like, what happened is they got Jim Comey to throw the election to Donald Trump. And I don't like want Democrats to be out there inventing bullshit Right as but, the but, as the basis for these things. In 2016, like huh? they, they, there were so many bad things about Trump, and and Democrats highlighted them all. There was the um, the tape of him, uh, you know, saying what we all the quote we all remember. And then there's um, you know, the, there were so many bad things about Trump that they did highlight and push very hard, you know. Um, yeah, and, the and, and yet and, and the Republicans came with this completely made up scandal that you know was equal in power to that. What makes you think that that just can't happen every time? So, I, I mean, I, I feel like I'm critical of the Democrats from like particularly 2019 to 20 to now. Um, and I it's not that I give them a pass exactly on things that happened between 2009 and, and 2019. But just that, like, how do you run against Donald Trump was a very new question in 2016. And I don't necessarily fault them for picking a strategy that that turned out to fail. Like, I think in hindsight, there are things, right? Like there's the famous story about the Obama administration seeking a, uh, like a, a united front of all the congressional leaders speaking out about what Russia was doing in the election and the apparent complicity of the Trump campaign. And Mitch McConnell put the kibosh on it, said, I'll accuse you of, of meddling in the election. And so they dropped it, basically. They put out some like mealy mouth, non-specific statement, and that was the best they could do, or the best they thought they could do. And I think that like in perfect hindsight, you should just say what's true and say, and Mitch McConnell is going to try to turn this into a partisan thing, but really he is he is like letting America get hurt, even though he knows what's happening is wrong. Also, at the time in 2014, Democrats just didn't have committee control of anything. They didn't have the House or the Senate. Right. So they couldn't out like like Hillary Clinton couldn't a bunch outsource. of investigations, con congressional investigations. Yeah, it, like like so Republicans had a really strong hand there. I think that Obama's instincts were understandable, but in hindsight, wrong. I like I don't think that they like fucked up in some way that was apparent to me at the time. I'm like, wow, I can't believe they're they're not doing this or that or the other thing. It's it's the stuff since then. It's like, oh, we we regained power in the House, and I really thought like. We're, we're going to be excited now to give Donald Trump the colonoscopy of a lifetime, but they weren't. And that's what surprised me. And that's when like my, we started this conversation. It's like, what's, what's your one insight? And this is the one thing I see. Been, I see it everywhere. The now key I insight. stop thinking about it, you know, it is that they didn't investigate Trump enough when they took over in uh, 20 in 2018. Well, yeah, they, they, they got committee control in 2019. And like, there, there's actually a, uh, this American Life, I think, some NPR show about um, about. But it was like, just the House, behind. not the Senate. Yeah, but they had, but like the the there's a like a fun episode. Actually, it's kind of infuriating where they go behind the scenes with Jerry Nadler and his staff on the Judiciary Committee and the internal debates they had over how aggressively to uh, like in, go after Bill Barr. Um, wait, wait a second, Brian. My mm -hmm. memory may serve me wrong here, but didn't they impeach Trump uh, after yeah. 2018? Yes. Like, I feel like this is like a very, that's big. 
That's big. No, deal. it is. It, it is big. Like I like I think that they were left no choice but to do it. And I mean, there is reporting to this effect, too. Or you could ask like Jamie Raskin about it. Um, there was a large appetite to do the kinds of investigations that might have yielded impeachment before the Ukraine whistleblower came forward. Um, it was the Ukraine whistleblower that like kind of forced them onto the path of impeachment. It was a, a path they ended up on very reluctantly. Um, and you you can see it in how they dealt with other potential oversight issues that they ducked. And the thing I was talking about, This American Life, I think, with Jerry, with behind the scenes with Jerry Nadler, really gets you a sense of how uh, how timid the leadership was about antagonizing the administration. Like the 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 desire among other senior Democrats to investigate emoluments violations by Donald Trump, like that the the kibosh came down on that from the leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they did the impeachment they limited it to the four corners of the whistleblower allegation, right? Like there were, there were sub revelations that came out in that impeachment that could have been fodder for further investigation, right? Like, like Donald Trump kept uh, these telcons, these, these like memos of his calls with foreign leaders on a classified server when he thought they might be incriminating. And like, what? Like, well, maybe the Democrat should go after that server and see what's on that, like, housed there and see what it, what he's been saying to people who aren't Vladimir Zelensky. And they just kind of let it drop. I mean, it's it would have been um, it would have been a huge dereliction not to not to impeach him over the Ukraine scandal. But their desire was to not end up in impeachment. And you can go read an op ed by Adam Schiff. I think it was like August or September 2018 before the election before they before they actually knew they were going to win. And and he wrote in The New York Times, like, don't get your hopes up about impeachment. We are not doing that because it won't be successful. And the immediate implication I took from that is, well, if you've decided in advance that you shouldn't impeach him, then you're probably not going to investigate him super hard, because what if you find impeachable conduct? You're going to be under a lot of pressure to do the impeachment. And so you're probably going to convince yourself it's not worth looking at in the first place. And that's essentially what happened between when they won and when the Ukraine whistleblower came forward and they did the impeachment, got it out of the way and moved on. And then I just think there was a lot more to do. Um, and uh, and I don't know how history would have turned out differently if they had really gone after every possible thing. Um, but, you know, maybe someday when Trump's dead and his books are all open and we can see every last thing he he did as president and on the side in his private business while he was president we'll know like what they left on the table i i imagine it was quite a lot right well i think that's a good place to wrap up because i have to go and uh, and brad already <laughs> had to go so um, <laughs> thanks that's interesting stuff to think about and honestly it is not stuff that i'm an expert in at all <laughs> and you know i i spend zero time thinking about these kind of issues you got to get a cork board and you got to get some red string and ah. you got to just start connecting the dots and suddenly all, the, the picture becomes clear. Um, gotcha. But seriously, thank you. And also Brad, who's now gone for, for having me on and for being sporting about this. Thanks. And I, I apologize that the, uh, that it ended up so chaotic with Brad having to go, but um, yes, very fun and uh, have a good one. And remember everyone, the key insight uh, in addition to the key insights delivered here today by Brian Boitler, whose Substack you should read, the key insight is always. And, and and what's the name of that Substack? Off Message. Off Message. Everybody, go to Off Message, subscribe to that Substack, and read that Substack. And um, but there's one key insight you will not find on that Substack, uh, which is, as always, Hexapodia. This has been Brad DeLong and Noah Smith's Hexapodia podcast. Uh, without Brad DeLong at the end, but with Brad DeLong at the beginning and with Brian Boitler as a special guest. Thank you, everybody, very much for listening and goodbye.